With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This episode of The Conspirators is brought to you by Audible.com. If you're like me, digging away at the impenetrable mysteries that the Illuminati don't want you to know, you don't always have time to sit down and read a book. That's where Audible.com comes in. They have an enormous selection of audiobooks read by some of the best voice talent in the world. Everything, including science fiction, love stories, comedies, and my personal favorites, espionage, history, and murder mysteries. Over 180,000 titles available on your favorite audio device. Right now, you can get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash theconspirators. And now, on with the show. If you're thinking about planning your next vacation, and you've already been to Vegas, Disney World, and the Washington Monument, can I make a few suggestions? Sure, you could visit the Grand Canyon, the Statue of Liberty, or any number of other touristy destinations. But if you're of a darker mindset, and I suspect you are if you're listening to me now, then perhaps you might be interested in something a bit more... interesting. In Philadelphia, you could always take a tour of the Mutter Museum, The two-story museum is owned by the College of Physicians of Philadelphia and is filled with preserved human corpses, historical torture instruments, and even a nine-foot human colon. Don't ask what they sell in the gift shop. Portland, Oregon is a sprawling underground of miles of twisting tunnels that were once used as a means of kidnapping unsuspecting men and selling them as free labor on ships, a practice that became known as shanghaiing. Across the U.S. are a number of abandoned insane asylums offering ghost tours, if you're into that sort of thing. Or if you're in Los Angeles, you could always head over to their own Museum of Death, which contains the world's largest collection of serial killer artwork. But if you're ever in the southwest corner of Iowa, there's a tiny town that you might want to pay a visit. Admittedly, the town of Villisca doesn't have a lot to offer tourists. It's a small rural farming community, and it only has about 1,200 residents. Stories vary over how the town got its name. Some residents claim the name Villisca means pretty place or pleasant view, although others claim the name Villisca is a variation on a Native American word which means evil spirit, which, all things considered, makes a degree of sense. Back in 1912, when the town gained its infamy, it was only a little bit larger than it is today. With about 2,500 residents and what was then considered a bustling Main Street, only today we'd probably call it quaint. Back then, the town was quite proud of having the only publicly funded armory in the state of Iowa, which helped fuel American war efforts in every major conflict from the Mexican-American War to Vietnam. But the armory isn't what Velisca is famous for. No, what they're known for is a little two-story timber frame house that doesn't look all that special from the outside. It's the terrible thing that happened inside that house about a hundred years ago that makes it so memorable. Back in 1994, a couple named Darwin and Martha Lynn bought and restored the home to its former glory. And for just under $500, you can spend the night there. Mind you, the house doesn't have a lot of amenities. 
There's no electricity or indoor plumbing, and the place is tiny, even a little cramped. It's how they built them back in the day. There are only three rooms on the main floor, a parlor, a bedroom, and a kitchen. Upstairs you'll find a couple more bedrooms and an attic above that. But what the house lacks for in luxury, it more than makes up for in history. For on a warm June night back in 1912, eight people were brutally murdered in that house. Eight people struck down in their sleep by a still unknown assailant. An assailant wielding an axe. I'm Nate Hale, and I'm having a staycation this year while I wait for the zombie apocalypse. And this is The Conspirators. On June 10, 1912, Mary Peckham got up at 5 a.m. to tend her animals. It was farm country, after all and people tended to get up early. By seven that morning, she noticed that her neighbors, the Moore family, hadn't yet emerged from their home to begin their own morning chores. Mary walked over and knocked on the door. When nobody answered, she tried the doorknob, but it was locked. This was a little unusual, because back then, hardly anyone locked their doors at night. Mary tried peering through the windows, but all the curtains were drawn, and the house remained eerily still. The Moore family consisted of Josiah Moore and his wife Sarah, along with her four children, 11-year-old Herman, 10-year-old Catherine, 7-year-old Boyd, and 5-year-old Paul. The evening before, Catherine had invited two of her friends, 8-year-old Ina Mae Stillinger and her sister, 12-year-old Lena, to stay over. The fact that none of the children were up and about that morning left Mary Peckham feeling a little uneasy. Mary let the Moore's chickens out called Ross Moore, Josiah Moore's brother. Ross came over and tried knocking, then shouting for his brother, but received no answer. He used his own copy of the house key to let himself in. Ross went to the parlor and opened the guest bedroom door. He gasped and stumbled backwards out of the room. Inside were the bloody bodies of Ina and Lena Stillinger. Ross went and told Mary Peckham to call Hank Norton, the town peace officer. When Hank Norton arrived, he searched the house and found the entire Moore family, along with the Stillinger girls, all dead. Every one of them had been bludgeoned to death with an axe. The night before the murders, the local Presbyterian church had held its annual Children's Day program. In attendance that night were the Moore children, along with Ina and Lena Stillinger. The festivities began at 8 p.m. and ended around 9.30. The Stillinger girls' parents weren't there that night, and they were afraid to walk home alone in the dark. The girls were good friends with Catherine Moore, and they asked if they could spend the night at her house. Josiah Moore phoned the Stillinger home and asked permission for the girls to stay over. One of the Stillinger girls' older sisters said she thought it would be okay, and they all returned to the Moore home sometime around 10 p.m. and settled in for the night. Then, it's believed that sometime after midnight, the killer struck. Evidence indicated that all the victims slept through the attack. Investigators believe the killer went to the parents' room first, then to the room the more children shared on the second floor, before heading downstairs and murdering the Stillinger girls last. Because the killer went for Josiah and Sarah first, 
it's often been speculated that one of them was the primary intended victim. As the killer raised the axe above his head, he struck the bedroom ceiling, gouging the plaster. Although there's been plenty of speculation over the years as to the killer's movements that night, to this day no one knows how he was able to move through the house and murder everyone without anyone waking up. There are things we can deduce about the murderer from the evidence he left behind. He was methodical in his own way, and it's clear that he didn't want to attract attention while he went about his work. Throughout the house, all the windows were covered, even those that didn't have curtains. He covered those windows with items of clothing taken from the Moore's closets. He also made a point of covering every mirror in the house as well. We can only speculate as to the reason why the killer would cover the mirrors. Perhaps he felt a sense of shame at what he'd done. Perhaps the eyes that stared back at him might cause him to falter in his mission. But like a lot of things with this case, we just don't know. As well as covering all the mirrors in the house, the killer also covered the faces of all his victims with their bedclothes. Based on the amount of blood that had soaked into them, it's believed that the killer covered their faces after the victims were already dead. Police found a kerosene lamp at the foot of the bed of Josiah and Sarah. The chimney had been removed and the wick had been turned back. Police found the chimney lying under the dresser. Another similar kerosene lamp was also found at the foot of the Stillinger girl's bed. The axe the killer used was also left in the spare bedroom with the Stillinger girls. It was Josiah's axe. Although the axe has taken on a particular level of infamy in the history of murder, back in the day it would have been seen as a weapon of convenience. Since most homes back then had either a wood-burning stove or a fireplace, owning an axe would have been a necessity. The killer apparently made a half-hearted attempt to clean up after himself. It looked like he attempted to wipe some of the blood off the axe. In the kitchen, they also found a pan of bloody water where he tried to wash up, alongside a plate of uneaten food. Police also found a piece of broken keychain and a two-pound slab of bacon wrapped in a dish towel in the lower bedroom. A second slab of bacon, about the same size, was found in the icebox. The only victim who appeared to have stirred from slumber during the attack was Lena Stillinger. Her body was positioned in such a way that it appeared she had squirmed partway down the bed. She was also found with her nightgown slit up and wearing no undergarments. There was a blood stain on the inside of her right knee, and what the doctors believed to be a defensive wound on her arm. Like the other victims, the killer covered Lena Stillinger's face, this time with a gray coat. Despite Lena's lack of undergarments, a medical examination showed that she had not been sexually assaulted. Although there is one rather disturbing suggestion that the killer used the bacon and the dish towel as some sort of masturbatory aid. Word spread quickly throughout town about the murders. The police almost immediately lost control of the situation, as literally hundreds of neighbors and curiosity seekers began traipsing through the house in order to get a look at the bodies. There was even a report that some residents were grabbing pieces of skull to keep as a ghoulish souvenirs. By noon that day, the Velisca National Guard had to be called in to usher people out and cordon off the scene, but by then the evidence had already been seriously compromised. Keep in mind, even if this crime scene hadn't been so thoroughly trampled through, it's difficult to say just how much evidence would have been available back then anyway. Fingerprinting was still a new science then, and we were nearly a hundred years away from the use of DNA evidence. 
The county coroner arrived at the house at 9 a.m. A coroner's jury was assembled by late afternoon, although they weren't able to view the bodies until several hours later. By 10 p.m., the coroner finally gave the okay to remove the bodies from the home. The town fire station was set up as a temporary morgue, and it was around 2 a.m. by the time they received them. On June 11th, the coroner's jury convened for the inquest. Mary Peckham was the first to testify about how she'd found the house locked tight before phoning Josiah Moore's brother. As other witnesses came forward, a clearer picture began to form as to what had happened. Investigators found a number of cigarette butts in the attic, and it was thought that the killer may have already been inside the house when the family arrived home. Then he waited for them to all go to sleep. It was also believed that after the killer went through the house and bludgeoned each victim to death, that he later went back to the rooms again and attacked them once more, even though everyone was already dead by that point. This time around, he battered each member of the Moore family's skulls repeatedly, reducing them to a bloody pulp. For the most part, he used the flat end of the axe, presumably because he knew the blade might get stuck. Judging by the bowl of water and the uneaten meal, the killer probably remained in the house until sometime near dawn before leaving and locking up behind him, taking the house keys with him. The murders sent a shockwave through the community. Things like this just didn't happen in quiet little towns like theirs. Authorities began searching for a transient killer, since most people had a hard time believing the crime could have been perpetrated by a member of their own community. Bloodhounds were sent out with no success, but with multiple trains running through town each day, if it had been a transient, he could have been long gone before the search even began. That night, everyone locked their doors tight, and they kept their children close. Hundreds of potential suspects were looked at, but right away one name jumped to the top of the list. Frank F. Jones was a prominent Villisca resident and Iowa State Senator. He had also once been Josiah Moore's boss at his farm implement company. That is, before Josiah went off and started his own competing business, taking one of his major clients, John Deere, with him. If that wasn't reason enough to suspect Jones of murder, there was also a rumor going around that Josiah Moore was having an affair with Jones's daughter-in-law, Dona. Dona had a reputation for having extramarital affairs, something she rather indiscreetly talked about on the phone to her lovers at a time when all calls had to be placed through a central operator with the ability to listen in. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The accusations against Jones created a rift that ran along religious lines in the community. Jones was a prominent member of the Methodist Church, and members of his congregation stood by his side while members of the Presbyterian Church, of which the Moors had belonged, swore the man was guilty. At the time of the murders, Frank Jones was 57, and few people suspected he had the strength or temerity to swing the axe himself. James Newton Wilkerson, a private investigator from Kansas City, became convinced that Jones had hired a man named William Mansfield to murder the Moore family. 
Mansfield was already an ex-convict and a suspect in a number of other similar murders. And in 1914, he became the prime suspect in the axe murders of his wife, her parents, and his own child in Blue Island, Illinois. The one problem with Wilkerson's theory was that Mansfield appeared to have an alibi for the time of the murders. Payroll records from Illinois seemed to indicate the man had been miles away on the night of the murders. Despite Mansfield's alibi, many people continued to believe that he and Frank Jones plotted the killings together. The suspicions around Frank Jones would eventually destroy both his public reputation and political career. As for Mansfield, James Wilkerson claimed he could place the man in the vicinity of several other axe murders throughout the United States, including a similar murder in Paola, Kansas only four days earlier. The Paola, Kansas murder, as well as another axe murder in Colorado Springs, and that of Mansfield's own family all bore eerie similarities to the Moore murders in many ways. In each instance, the mirrors throughout the house were covered, and an oil lamp with a bent wick and missing chimney was left at the scene of the crime. Wilkerson also noted that in each instance the killer left no fingerprints, indicating he may have worn gloves, which would make sense if it were Mansfield, since he was an ex-convict and his prints would have been on file. A local restaurant owner came forward and gave a statement that directly contradicted Mansfield's alibi. He claimed he saw Mansfield boarding a train near town right around the time of the murders. Another woman claimed she overheard three men in the woods plotting the murders the same day. But even with these witnesses, there just wasn't enough evidence to convict Mansfield or Frank Jones of murder. But Jones and Mansfield weren't the only strong suspects. There was even one suspect who confessed to the crimes. His name was Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly, an English immigrant, preacher, and sexual deviant with a laundry list of known mental problems. He had been in town the night of the murders, and he even admitted to leaving by train shortly after the murders occurred. Two days before the murders, he'd been caught peeping into people's windows. In 1914, Kelly placed a newspaper advertisement asking for a female stenographer. The catch was Kelly insisted the applicant be willing to perform the job in the nude. One applicant received a reply letter from Kelly that was reportedly so lewd and depraved, a judge refused to enter it into the public record during Kelly's grand jury trial. Shortly after the murders, Kelly allegedly sent some bloody clothes to the cleaners. When he was on the train ride out of town, he allegedly told some other passengers about the murder, hours before the bodies were even found. On top of all that is the fact that Kelly actually attended the Children's Day celebration at the Presbyterian Church the night of the murders. So it sounds like police got the right man, doesn't it? But there were problems with Kelly being the killer. For one thing, he was only five foot two and a mere 119 pounds. It seems difficult to believe that someone so small could have swung the axe that night, killing eight people especially Josiah Moore, who was over six feet and weighed more than 200 pounds. It's not even certain if someone Kelly's height would have been tall enough for the upswing of the axe to strike the bedroom ceiling the way it did. Nonetheless, many people believe that Kelly followed the family home that night and waited for his moment to strike. Investigators found a bale of hay with a depression where they said someone may have lie in wait, as well as a knot hole in the barn through which someone such as Kelly could have used as a peephole to watch the family come and go. A week after the murders, Kelly returned to Villisca and showed a strange interest in the case, even going so far as to pose as a Scotland Yard investigator in order to get information. 
Many modern criminal profilers will point out that some deranged murderers will try to insinuate themselves into the criminal investigation in just such a way. Police arrested Kelly in 1917 and got him to sign a confession in which he stated, I killed the children upstairs first, and the children downstairs last. I knew God wanted me to do it this way. Slay utterly came to my mind, and I picked up the axe, went into the house, and killed them. He later recanted this confession, and so did the witnesses who claimed Kelly told them about the murders on the train. With no real physical evidence to hold him over for the crime, the first grand jury hung, and the second voted to release him without charges. Some investigators clung to the idea that the killer was a transient. In fact, throughout 1911 and 1912, there were a string of similar axe murders throughout the Midwest. I mentioned some details of these crimes in my episode on the Axemen of New Orleans, another famous unsolved crime that some people have suggested might be related. Some of these killings were attributed to a suspected serial killer from Missouri named Frank Lee Moore. No relation to the Moore family, by the way. Although Moore was eventually convicted of the similar axe murders of his mother and grandmother, he's no longer considered a serious suspect in the Velisca murders. And like that, we're left with the unsatisfactory knowledge that someone got away with murder. We can only speculate and try to imagine what could drive a human being to commit such a horrendous act. The house remained empty for several years before finally being sold and resold a few times. In recent decades, the home has become a favorite destination for paranormal investigators looking for ghosts. Keep in mind, there probably isn't a home in America where a major tragedy occurred that hasn't been rumored to be haunted at one time or another. In the case of the Velisca Axe murder house, none of the subsequent owners claimed to have encountered any ghostly activity. At least not until Darwin and Martha Lynn bought and restored the place back in 1994. After that, the stories began about strange and unexplainable things happening in the night. About cold spots and strange feelings of unease. Apparitions seen from the corner of the eye. You know, the usual. Several ghost hunting TV shows and independent paranormal investigators stayed in the home, hoping to contact the spirits of the murder victims. Many ghost hunters have held seances in the house, brought Ouija boards with them, EVP recorders and even the original acts from the murders in hope of stirring up some paranormal activity. But to this day, nothing conclusive has ever been recorded, and whether you believe the house is haunted is up to you to decide. In 2014, a 37-year-old Wisconsin man named Robert Lorson and two companions paid to stay in the house overnight in order to conduct a paranormal investigation of their own. Reports are thin as to what, if anything, occurred that night to the three men. What is known is that at 12.45 in the morning, right around when many people believe the killer struck, Lorson was alone in one of the upstairs bedrooms while his two companions remained outside. That was when he began screaming for help into his two-way radio. Lorson's companions rushed inside to see what was wrong. There, they found Lorson in the bedroom bleeding. He had stabbed himself in the chest in what police say was a self-inflicted wound. The Conspiratist is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I couldn't do this show without you. Just a reminder, this episode is brought to you by Audible.com, and you can sign up for a free 30-day trial at www.audibletrial.com slash theconspirators. Just for signing up, you'll receive a free download for you to keep. 
I know podcasts say these things a lot, but you can really help us out by telling your friends and family about us and subscribing and leaving a positive review on iTunes. We're also available on Stitcher, the Google Play Store, and our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening.